0: Good morning. I'm so thankful that you're here uh, and you're joining us today. I, uh, I pray you'll keep your Bibles open to 2 Samuel uh, here as we encounter the Word today. You know, just uh, before we get started, uh, over the last uh, few days, we've been in contact with some uh, state and, and even uh, local city leaders. And, uh, and it looks like that, that the month of May and possibly June will be a transition time for us. Our staff is going to meet tomorrow to kind of walk through that transition plan for us, and we'll be communicating that to you in the coming days. So, uh, you know, things are like they could change. I mean, things have changed on me, uh, on us all, uh, but, uh, but we're at least moving back to some transition, and so we're excited about that. Now, Second uh, Samuel, we're in this new series called A Time of David, and I want to start by just asking that question, uh, when's the last time— that you said out loud to the Lord, God, what are you doing? I mean, think about that. Today, today's a big day in Oklahoma. Uh, today's the 25th anniversary for the Murrah building bombing. And uh, one of our leaders and deacons in our church, Terrence Kelsch, Kels, his sister passed away in the bombing. I remember where I was uh, on April 19th. Um, Robin and I had been married a year, a little, in our first year of marriage. and. And uh, I, I remember uh, hearing the, that news. I remember uh, recognizing and hearing that my Uncle Paul was in the building when it blew up. Robin's Uncle Dennis was in the building when it blew up. And, and they both survived. And, and I can remember talking to my Uncle Paul, who actually went to Timothy McVeigh's execution, talking about that. And, um, and this shaped our lives. And this was definitely one of those moments as Oklahomans, as... Uh, Uh, people impacted I remember hearing Mickey Maroney passed away who was one of our youth workers at Council Road was killed in the bombing tremendous leader of our student ministry taught 10th grade boys in our church and and and, you know I uh, it was one of those moments that we would say God what are you doing God where are you and um, and that's a natural question and and and, you know I can think about like that question coming out right now God where are you in this COVID-19 debacle um, where are you with our economy? I know we've had people in our church that have lost their jobs this week. And we can honestly say, God, what, what are you doing? Where are you? It's a natural question. And, uh, and you know there are times, if I we're honest, there are times we come to the Lord in those questions and, and it's a time of, of genuine, Lord, we want to seek you for wisdom. And, and that's good to, to be in those, que- those moments of tragedy and, and difficulty when we say, God, what, what are you doing? What do you want us to do? But, but let's be honest, there are times that we come to the Lord in those moments and we have a heart of criticism or, God, what do you think you're doing? God, I know more than you. God, uh, how can you do this? You're not right. It's not right. You've made an error here. And, and we've all been in those moments. And, and, and when I think about that practice of, of bringing the God of all creation into my personal court of judgment. You know, I I see that a lot Uh, of humanity saying, and and in my own life, I've said, God, I'm going to bring you into my judgment and look at you and say, how dare you do this? And you know, when you consider that question, you consider who God is. Like like the king of all kings, the Lord of all lords, the, the author of life and death, the one who who spoke with his mouth and the world was created. The the one who, the Bible says, measures the universe with the span of his hand. And I look at me in my smallness. Who am I to say to God, How dare you? What are you doing? And I think back about that question of the times that I've asked God and, and brought him into my court of judgment. And I, and I wonder, God, why didn't you just strike me down? Who am I in my smallness to do that? But yet the longer I've come to know the Lord and walked with the Lord, the longer I've been in his word, I recognize the grace of God. And his mercy is more that we just sang, that Joe just led us in, that, that his mercy is more. And, and thankfully, you know, I'm, move, I'm moved by the fact that knowing the Lord and, and, and knowing that he's completely right in all the ways that he acts, and, and I'm, I'm thankful for the grace that he's shown me, even in my arrogance, of putting him in those, that court of judgment to say, God, what are you doing? Now, my, my, my youngest daughter read the passage today. And in and, and, and 2 Samuel 6 is this really interesting moment where, where David was, uh, was, was angry at God. I mean, think about that. I mean, I mean as you look at the idea of can, can you really be angry at God? Is it okay to be angry at God? And David has this moment in his life when he's like, God, what are you doing? And he's angry and he leaves. And so, so today, let's, let's, we're, we're in the book of Samuel, okay? We've been in, and a lot has happened in our world since March 15th. And that's when we turned our face to Easter and we went back to the, the we left the book of Samuel and kind of went to Easter. And now what I want us to do is go back to the book of Samuel, because I think God has something important for us to learn and, and, and incredible messages for us through his word. And this story of David, we're, we're calling series the series The Time of David. And, and, and for those of you that missed the study of 1 Samuel, let me just remind you of a couple of things. We, we understood that, that Samuel is historical narrative. That's the genre of scripture that Samuel is. is. And now in the, in the old scrolls, in the old books of uh, the, the, the Hebrew uh, original documents, Samuel was actually one book. So it wasn't divided between first and second Samuel. It was kind of seamless going from Saul to David. And and, um, and you know what's interesting is because at a glance, as you look at the history of the world, you recognize that this nation of Israel they really weren't the major players in the world. You had you had Babylon that was this incredible uh, powerhouse known for law. You had Egypt. Uh, they were known for wisdom and the things that Egyptians built, and they were the powerhouse. You had the, the Assyrians who were brutal and these powerhouse armies. And, and you have these three players in the world, and then stuck in the middle is this little nation of Israel. And you would think, oh, well, they're just a little blip on the radar. But, but the difference is God's hand was on that people. And, and it's interesting as you see how all through history, God's hand has been on the, the, the people, the Jews, the, the nation of Israel, and the number of times that people have tried to, to wipe them out and they still are thriving because God's hand is on the people of Israel and has been. And, 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 and you know, these, these, that's why you've got to be careful not to just let appearances of, well, the Babylonians or the, the Egyptians or the Assyrians, those are the world players, but God's hand is on his people and this is a beautiful reality but when you think about the big picture of samuel let's let's understand this let's remember a few things and if you're joining us new and you didn't you could find those messages online i invite you to go look through our study of first samuel but uh, but you know when you think about the story, Samuel describes this transition of God's people, and and they were they were transitioning between the the worship of the uh, of, of of God at the shrine at Shiloh, and then you see the worship of God moving to Jerusalem. It describes this this rebellious people. Honestly, the God God's people were rebellious, and you just you see this 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 transition from the time of the judges. Like if you study the book of Judges, Samuel comes after that book of Judges. Samuel's actually the last judge in Israel. And, and you see this transition to the kings as we saw Saul. And, and Saul's journey of, well, actually the people of God wanted a king. And they in their rebellion, they said, we want our king like all the other nations. And so God granted the request that they, they asked for and gave them Saul. And it was a disaster. And so often we recognize this. When we take matters into our own hands, it's usually a disaster. And, and then you see God's people uh, finding David, God bringing David into their lives. And Samuel anoints David as king. And, 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 and you see this uh, in, in 1 Samuel, you see the, the nation of Israel fail as Eli and his sons, Hophni and Phinehas, and they they, they lose the Ark of the Covenant in this failure. They they failed miserably. Saul started out well, but then he failed miserably. Then you see in 2 Samuel, David comes in as the king. And you see him as a man after God's heart. And you see this beautiful example of of repentance and forgiveness and, and godly leadership, but you also see that he's a flawed king. He has failures, and, and he makes mistakes, and, and, uh, and he struggles as a father. And, and what's interesting is, as you look at the book of Samuel, God allows us to come up close and personal and see the sins of God's people. Now, if you're taking notes, and I hope you are, get a pen out. Let's engage today. Let's engage the Word of God. Let's engage together as we as we look at this because you see the 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 up close and personal the sins of God's people. Now what's the root of sin? Well point number one is this the, the root of sin is rebellion against God. Now let's let's remember this. Like right now in our in our in our world, in our nation, people are quoting Second Chronicles seven fourteen left and right. God heal our land, God heal our land, God heal our land. But, but let's not miss the first part of that. That's a call to repentance, a call to say, God, forgive our sin. And see, the root of God's people um, all through history has been God's people getting, rejecting God and, and, and rebelling against God. And, and what you see in First and 2 Samuel, you see it mirrors our society. That's why it's so important for us to study this is a mirror to our society. When you think about this book, it's so—it's like a—it's like a, a, a reality show. It's so honest. It, it makes us uncomfortable. It—it it, it brings up the the social problems that we have. It's a mirror to our society, and it's so fascinating, so important for us. You now we got to recognize God's the main character in this book, and what it does, what God's doing. He's pointing us to the coming Messiah. That's Christ coming to the world. And, and that's what we—that's why we have to to recognize this. That that this is a beautiful uh, um, foreshadowing, if you will, of the Messiah that's coming. But God is the main character of the book. We want to highlight David and Saul and these people. But God is at work in the lives of His people, and and, and this is the beautiful uh, story of life that God is at work in our lives and in in, in in God's people, and and you. Now, now, as you look at the book of Samuel, you got to recognize this book is best interpreted to us rather than me. And this is so very important. So often we look at David and go, look, I'm conquering uh, the Goliaths in my life. That, that's okay. But, but that's not really the point. The point of David is that David is this picture of Christ. Now, he's a flawed picture, of course, like every human being. But let's understand that, that, the, 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 that the book of Samuel, it is best interpreted to us as God's people. And that's why I think it's so critically important for us to encounter together as a, as a body, as a church. And, and I'm so grateful for our church. I'm so grateful that God has entrusted us to a work here in Owasso, to a work in Tulsa through, through our Calvary campus through the work of the mission uh, and, and as a help to our to our the rural areas around us but but look let's interpret this to us not just to a me and and that's important now before we get to the the, the text that Maggie read for us today let's kind of look at second at, at, at Samuel chapter chapters two through through six through two through five if you will so get your Bibles out and let's look at this because when you think about uh, March fifteenth, we ended it at, at Samuel. Samuel had died. Saul has died, and let's catch up to the to, to where we are in this text. Saul is dead, and, 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 and you know you see how, how Saul worked hard for over a decade trying to kill David. Remember when Samuel anointed David as king, and then for a, for ten years David ran from Saul. Let's let's feel that timeline. Because we read this so quickly, but we got to recognize 10 years have passed and David's been on a run, on the run and, and Samuel uh, has died now and the prophet is dead. Now, now Saul, the king, has died and, and right when Saul died, it wasn't like everybody flipped on a switch and said, okay, well, let's follow David. That's not what is described in, in chapter two. David is anointed king by the people of Judah. And and after Saul's death, Ish, Ishbosheth, uh, which was Saul's son, he is anointed king. So now there there are two kings at, in in Israel's in the guy in the people of God, two kings. There's David. There's Ishbosheth, and and this is Saul's son, and and, and this this led to some serious conflict, and, and, and you and, and this is a. You see this division between Judah and Israel, and what this is—it's a glimpse of of what's going to happen in the future, as as Israel and as Judah uh, divide after Solomon, and, and 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 you see this incredible picture of David as as this story unfolds. David did his best in this time of conflict to kind of bring these these people together and build bridges, but as as chapters three and four unfold you see that, that it gets bloody. Abner, you can see, comes to, to David's side and, 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 and he switches sides from Ishbosheth, and, but, but Joab and, and Abner start this fighting and, and, and Joab kills Abner. And it was devastating and this, this adds conflict. And, 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 but Joab was mad at Abner because, because Abner killed his brother. So he took revenge and, and kind of had this, this sinister plot and, 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 and called, called Abner in to, hey, I want to talk to you. And then he just stabs him and kills him, humiliates him. And David's grieving and there's disunity among God's people. And look at chapter 3, verse 1. Turn over to chapter 3, verse 1, because I think this sums it up as you look at what's going on. There was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. And David grew stronger and stronger, while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. And and it's interesting as this drama unfolds. There there are, there are terrible actions by these characters in this story. There there are, there are terrible actions by David, by Abner, by by. Uh, by Joab and 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 there's there's other guys that are crooked and Ishbosheth gets killed and and it's just this this gritty this real this raw these horrific details of as God's people try to figure out how to live their lives it's so important now now let's understand something this text these texts this text it describes actions of God's people but, but let, me, let me tell you, let's, let's notice something. This is not prescribing these actions. You know, just because this, you see violence and you see polygamy, you see uh, brutality take place, these are not blueprints for us. I, I mean, we know what Jesus has said. Jesus fulfilled all the prophecies and he said to us that 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 we're not to uh, retaliate we are to do good to those who come against us in Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount Matthew 5 it says we're to be do good to those who slander us we're in 1st Peter 2 a beautiful picture that, that we're to not retaliate we're to follow the example of Christ and and and, and not uh, not fight again not retaliate against somebody that wrongs us we're also not to have multiple wives. I mean, we see this, and David is, is this flawed example. He's getting Michael back and breaks her husband's heart. You see this unfolding in chapters two through five. And, and, and polygamy is not something we're to do. I mean, this is not only a, a breaking the, the, the plan of God, it's also super expensive to have multiple wives. I would just, I mean, I love, let's just have one. That's good. So, so let's, but we see this unfolding. It's not prescribing for us to do these things. But it's so honest in its description that you see the flaws. Now, now look at chapter 5, verse 12. This is interesting. And I think this kind of, uh, as, as this unfolds, as the drama unfolds in 2 through 5, and David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel, and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of, of his people Israel. Now, God had established David. And now comes his reign, his time. Because Judah now and, and Israel are back together. And, and this, the, this healing takes place. And David is doing his best to, to bring uh, reconciliation after the death of, of Abner and, and, and after Joab's error. And now chapter 6 starts. And, and we've got to feel this. This is this, this, this moment that everybody is recognizing, God, you are bringing us together. You are blessing us. And it's almost like, the, like what we will feel when we get to come back together as normal. Oh, Lord, you've brought us through. Um, and chapter six takes place. And this is so important. This is this moment that, that David looks at God and says, God, what are you doing? And this is one of those moments that causes us to confront this look at chapter 6 verse 1. And David gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. Imagine the scene. 30,000 people gather. And what do they do and they're 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 going to to, to get to, to to get the ark of the covenant. They're going to grab it and say, hey, let's let's bring the ark to Israel. So David gathers this 30,000 people for this incredible worship service. They were so grateful. God had moved. God had brought them together. And what do they say? They're to bring the ark of God to Jerusalem. Now you remember the ark of God, don't you, right? You remember the ark of the covenant? It's that wooden box that, that uh, had gold on the inside. It was overlaid with gold. It had the, the mercy seat with those angels looking at one another. And, and that's where the Ten Commandments were. And, and, and you know, it was, uh, it was placed in the innermost part of the tabernacle. And, and it, was, it was called the most holy place. Why? Because the ark, it represented the presence of God. That's very important. And now, now, think back to our study in 1 Samuel. Remember, it's chapter 5. You don't have to turn there, but I just want to remind you of, of, of Hophni and Phinehas. Remember that moment? Hophni and Phinehas, we looked at them. They were wicked priests. They, were, they, they, uh, they thought the ark was like a rabbit's foot, a lucky rabbit's foot. So what did they do? They took it to that battle. And then in the day they died... That God killed them. God said, "I'm going to kill. I'm going to make sure you die." God killed Hophni and Phineas, and um, and they died in that battle. And, and the ark was stolen, and people were devastated. In uh, that moment, when 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 Eli found that out, he f- falls in grief and dies. And, and you know, it's interesting. As uh, remember what happened: the Philistines took the ark, and, and they were so excited. That what they did? They took it in their, in their temple of, of, of Dagon. And, and this honor-shame culture that's going on right here, you've got to recognize this. As you look at the culture of Israel at this time, it's an honor-shame culture. And they take the presence of God into, the, into where Dagon is. And, and what happens, ultimately, Dagon falls over. His head is off. His hands are cut off. Which is a beautiful, well, interesting, not a beautiful, interesting picture of this honor-shame culture, that if you want to humiliate somebody and shame them, you cut their head off, you cut their hands off. And Dagon, this God that the Philistines worshipped, had his head and his hands cut off as this honor-shame statement that, that I'm humiliating you. God did that. And then, remember what the Philistines did? They put the ark, they, they got tumors and they got hemorrhoids and, and, and they made golden hemorrhoids and golden mice and they put it in the ark and they said, we, we, we don't the presence of God is terrifying to us. So what they do, they, they put the ark on an ox cart and, and had two cows together and they, they said, let's let it go back. And those cows took it to Abinadab's house. That's where the ark is for 20 years. Now the Philistines have been defeated, and this is a big moment. And David, what did he do? He pulled out every instrument. I mean, I picture this is bigger than the Owasso band marching through town. Imagine 30,000 people in Owasso marching up 169, singing praises to the Lord with every instrument we can find. Look at verse 3. And they carried the ark. On a new ox cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God. And Ahio went before the ark, verse 5. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand of the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. Now, now think about this. There's 30,000 people in this procession, and, and the oxen stumbled, and, and this little accident happened. Uzzah is genuinely worshiping the Lord. He's praising God. He's, he's, he's sincerely coming to the Lord with gratitude and joy at what God has done, and we're taking the ark to, to, to Jerusalem. This is all a good thing. But these animals stumble, and, and Uzzah does what probably all of us would do if we were standing there. The ark is about to hit the ground. So what does he do? He dives, sacrifices himself, and said, I'm not going to let the ark get dirty. And he catches it. And in this worship service, Uzzah suddenly dies because God killed him. Look at this. Um, he, he dies. Verse 7. Look how God responded. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah. And God struck him down there because of his error. And he died there beside the ark. I mean, this would be like, this would be like our guitar player. Or Job saying, we're going to sing before the Lord and we're worshiping with joy and all of a sudden God strikes him dead. We'd be like, okay, worship service is over. Okay, that's exactly what happened. It's over. And, and, and you know, here it it's, causes us to struggle. Why? Because we get this picture of this angry God who lashes out at Uzzah when he's, when he's sincerely trying to worship. He's got a. I I would argue, he's wanting to please the Lord here. And, and part of us have to wrestle with, God, what are you doing? Why is Uzzah's action so sinful? Uh, also, we can relate to David's response here. Look at his response in verse 8. David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing. Look at that. He's not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. The the Gittite, excuse me. Now, let's keep something in mind this morning, point two. And this will be hard to write down. But did you know that all through history, God has been offensive to man? I want you to think about that. All through history, God remains offensive to man. Now, um, it's not a little shocking to us to recognize that that, that we're not the the first people in the history of the world. Well, excuse me, it may be a little shocking to us to find out that we're not the first people in the world that's looked at God and said, what are we doing? Because think about our society right now. We think, oh, we're so advanced. I mean, look at what we've um, we've made. We we look back at old at primitive people, like in the time of David, and go, you know what? They were primitive. They they didn't know what we know. So they just believed in God. But we are smart. We have. We've, we're in the information age, right? We have vaccines that we can make. We have, we have a, a technology that is driving our culture. culture. Look what we have created. But, but we think ancient man, oh, they, they, were, they, were, they weren't as smart as us. So that lets us be able to put God in our court of judgment. And... And I'll tell you what, we all are tempted to think, God, we know more than you. And so it's easy for all of us to look at God like David. God, what are you doing? How dare you take Uzzah's life? Now let's think about Uzzah for a moment. What was his crime? What do you think Uzzah's crime was? Like I said earlier, the ark represents the presence of God. And and all through Israel's history, the Ark of God brought, brought blessing, security, power. And this is why David wants, wants the ark back. He wants it back. And, and, and David, like all of us, we, we, don't you want the, the powerful God of creation to be on our team? I mean, don't you want that? Don't, I mean, it's frightening to I, I heard the governor of New York say that, "Oh, God didn't do this. We are curving this virus. Oh, we got to be careful. We want the God on our team and, and it, the God of all creation on our team. We absolutely do. Now, the Philistines, those that are opposing God, I'll, I'll tell you what, the presence of God is frightening. Those of us that honor the Lord and know the Lord, the presence of God is strength and power. And, and God's presence, though, we got to recognize is dangerous. It's, he, he's, he's, it's impactful. He's working and what makes it so powerful? What makes God's presence so powerful? And here's what I think it is. It's his holiness. It's the holiness of God that makes his presence so powerful. Now, now, God is completely holy. And we've got to recognize that man is completely sinful. And we won't understand the holiness of God until we stand before him face to face. And let me tell you something, that's a moment on every one of our calendars. There will be a day we will uh, meet God face to face. And let me tell you something, for every every man, that's when we will understand things fully. Flip over real quick to Philippians chapter 2, verse 10. I want you to see this verse, Philippians 2, 10. It says this, so at, the same time, at the, so at the name of Jesus, every knee, knee should bow in heaven and on earth and, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's remember that God's ways are not random. They're not. And, and God did not lash out at Uzzah here on a whim or just some uh, random act. God lashed out at Uzzah because he was guilty now let's wrestle with this truth for a second. The punishment of God always fits the crime. And we gotta recognize that, that the punishment of God fits the crime every time. No, Romans says, no one's gonna stand before God and say, well, God, I have an excuse. No man is without excuse. And, and, and so let's recognize the punishment of God always fits the crime. Anything, and what's us as crime? Well, God had given very clear instructions about the ark. It's in Exodus 25, 10 through 22. This is how they were to carry the ark. The priests of God were to, were to use these poles that were on these four rings on the ark and, and, and their hands were never to touch the ark, ever. But, but notice something. What are they doing? What is, what are, what is David doing? What is, what is uh, Uzzah and, and Ahio doing? They are not carrying the ark like they were instructed to do in Exodus. They were carrying the ark like the Philistines were carrying the ark. They put it on an ox cart. Those a new ox cart. Now, now let's, let's hear this. This story alone should tell us how God, God feels about the attitude that says, I worship God in my way. Look, we don't worship God in our own way. He's the king of all kings. He's the Lord of all lords. And, and, and so many people in our day think, if I'm just sincere in my worship, God will honor that. And this is one of those moments in Scripture that, that warns us that even if we're sincere, to disobey the word of God is not okay. To to, to take the presence of God lightly, it's not okay. So don't miss this truth. Uzzah did not, didn't want the ark to get dirty, right? I mean, it's plausible, it makes sense. But, but let me tell you something about dirt and the earth. The earth cries out, the rocks cry out in praise for the Lord. The earth doesn't rebel against God. Who rebels against God? It's me and you, Uzzah. It's man who, who is rebelling against God, and Scripture offers this critical truth without apology, uh, without apology, that the punishment God gives to sinners always fits the crime, and this is true every, every time. And, and, and we see in Scripture that God warns us of his justice. And, and can I tell you this? Can, I, can we recognize this, that the warning of God's justice is a clear act of mercy? That the fact that we are warned about the, about the holiness of God, that he demands holiness. Now, now the fact that Uzzah, the fact is, you think about this story, is not the only guilty person here. All 30,000, those they are sincere, are guilty of rebelling against God. And the fact that God just killed Uzzah, in itself, as an act of mercy. God could have killed all 30,000. But that worship service stopped immediately. And look at verse 11. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, Obed-Edom the Gittite, for three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and, and all his household. So, so then what you see here is David repents. David goes back and says, Okay, God, I've been angry at you, but look, I repent. And I come to you and ask forgiveness. And, and David brought the ark, verse. Um, David went and brought the ark of, of, of God from the house of Obed Edom to the city of David with rejoicing, verse 13. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened calf. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. Now, historically, Baptists don't dance, that's changed nowadays. Thankfully, um, but, but most of us historic Baptists, we go, we don't dance. I mean, sin, sin occurs when you get, if you got one foot on the ground, it's not sin. But if you get both feet in the air, then it's sin. I, you know, we make all these rules, right? David danced before the Lord. And, and what's interesting about this, um, he was wearing a linen ephod, it says. Now, now this, this is significant. The linen ephod is significant. It's, it's like underwear. It was, it was, it was, it's not significant because it was undergarments. It's significant because it's what priests wore. And in this moment, David is not doing something sensual or, or stripping in public. He's not doing that. What David is doing, he's giving us a picture of Christ who is both a priest and a king. And that's important that's a picture that we need to recognize. Christ was, the, was a prophet, was a priest, was a king. And David is this picture of Jesus, though he's flawed. Verse 15, so David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with sound of the horn. And the ark of the Lord came into the city of David. Then you see this interesting conflict with Michael. Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. And they brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place in the tent of David. He had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. Now, how do we understand Michael's response here? You think about Michael, uh, she's angry at David for a lot of reasons but she despises him because of him wearing a linen ephod, and he was dancing before the Lord. In fact, look at verse 20, and David returned to bless bless his household, but Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, how the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of the servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. Now, how, how do we understand this? Because David, what does he do? He rebukes Michael. He rebukes her and he says, Look, Michael, I danced before the Lord today. I didn't dance for I didn't dance for men. I danced before the Lord. Michael, what is she doing? She is she is following the example of her father. What did her father do? Saul was notorious for saying, I care more about my reputation than I care about God's reputation. Saul was setting up tributes to himself. And here is is Michael following suit. She's worried about what what people think of her. It's my husband out there dancing. And what is David saying? David's saying, I'm going to be a king with a little k. And I'm going to dance before the Lord because I submit to him and I worship him. And I am not ashamed to let the world know, even all of my people, that I am under the authority of God himself, the king of all kings. You see, David discovered as he went back home angry, God kept pursuing him. God kept pursuing his heart, saying, David, I love you. David, you've got to honor my word. David, repent. And like David did time and time again, he is the the greatest human example in scripture of repentance. We get Psalm 51 from David's repentance. And see, God kept pursuing his heart, helping us learn how to repent. It's like when we pray for our nation and Second Chronicles, we love that verse, but let's not skip over the forgive our sin and get straight to the heal our land. One of our greatest needs is repentance. And when I look at this wrestling, this passage that I wrestle with, and I confront this idea, God, what are you doing? And I, and I see this story of Uzzah and, and, the, and the call to, to honor the Lord. The call to to, to recognize the presence of God is our desperate need. Uh, I'm amazed that God loves people so much that he he doesn't leave us alone. Do You know that God loves people too much to leave us alone? That there's a reason that you keep tuning in to us? That that you're drawn to, to the Lord right now in this time of, God, what are you doing? You see, through this time of questioning, God showed his grace, and he didn't leave David alone. He didn't leave his people alone. Let me tell you, he's not going to leave you alone. That's why God has made his way to the path to heaven so clear. And when I think about how God has given us the gift of his word, this is a gift that he's given his people, and, and he told them in Exodus 25, this is how you're to carry the ark. My word is a gift. Turn to it. And I, I believe Uzzah's in heaven. And I believe if you talk to Uzzah, he'll say, when we talk to Uzzah, he's going to say, I'm so glad God took my life that day because I want God's people to recognize the importance of his word. Don't miss the gift of his word. Maybe today God's, God's stirring your heart, offering you the gift of repentance. Do you know that God gives the gift of repentance? That God moves us to Repent. And if there's a stirring in your heart right now, it's not because, hey, I may be this persuasive leader. I'm not. I'm I'm just a guy. But I'm a pastor called to stand in front of you as his ambassador to, to, to say to you, there's a gift of repentance. And if God's stirring your heart right now, if you come to him. He won't turn you away, and we have people online right now that will help you understand how to receive that gift of repentance. And I don't want you to miss this truth that God gives, God grants the gift of his presence. That even though I'm not physically with you in the same room physically right now, we're in the same moment right now, and God is moving right now. And, and the Bible says where two or more are gathered, he's there. And I believe that includes this moment with you and me, wherever you are. And, 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 and when I look at this beautiful, fearful, scary moment of the presence of God, I think, how can I go into his presence? How, who am I? Who am I to go into the presence of God? Uh, you know, I'm broken. But can I tell you this incredible news? I want you to flip over to Isaiah chapter 53, and I want you to see this. I want you to see it in the Word. I want you to turn over to it, because I want you to know this isn't what I've said to you. This is what God has said to us. This is not just me to you. It's God to us. Isaiah 53, verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement. thats Chastisement means punishment. The, the, the chastisement that brought us peace. The punishment that brings us peace was on him. And, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone, everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You see, I, like so many of you, know what it's like to be rescued. I was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. And that's why I want to come before you today and let you know that Jesus loves you. He sees you. And if you come to him, he won't turn you away. And and it's my prayer today that you allow us to connect with you live and in person. And, And we could do that right now, whether it's through a chat or whether it's through a phone call or whether it's if you just fill out that form that's on the online, we'll, we'll connect with you. Hey, God's put us in, our, in your life for a reason. God's brought you to us for a reason. Let us help you. Lord Jesus, in this moment, it is my prayer that your Holy Spirit draws us close to you. I pray for that one that right now there is a draw to repentance, that they would would reach out. Lord, as we walk through these days, Lord, we need you to heal our land. But we recognize that our greatest need is to repent of our sin. So move us, Lord, to repentance, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.